welcome to the latest edition of the European Football Show and the World Football Index. Today I'm joined by four very interesting guests from various parts of Europe. First up is uh, Sam Leverage. Sam, great to have you on. Well, and great to be here. Uh, can you take, tell us a bit about yourself, Sam? Uh, where are you based and uh, where is your kind of expertise in football? Like? Yeah, sure. So I am based in Madrid and so I mostly cover La Liga, Segunda División in, in Spain for La Liga Lowdown and also for Marca in English. So covering a lot of what's going on in Spain with Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid especially, and then also kind of all of the teams in La Liga. So Barcelona, Sevilla, all of the, the classic teams in La Liga. I'm a Liverpool fan myself, but, but my day-to-day is La Liga. Brilliant, brilliant. Also joining us is Jasmine Baba. Jasmine, how are you and uh, and where are you coming to us from? Um, I'm not too well because, unfortunately, I'm an Arsenal fan, but um, I'm based in Germany. I only moved here a couple of weeks ago and I am covering Bundesliga as well as the Premier League and sometimes Wolfsvenston, but um, yeah, mostly the English Premier League and Bundesliga at the moment. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Um, Jonathan Fedogba, how are you? Uh, welcome to the show. And uh, where are you coming to us from? Hi there. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, hi, Alan. Yes, um, I'm based in London and uh, I'm the founder of Just Football and also the Nordic Football Podcast covering football in Scandinavia and I also work as a football consultant within, within um, uh, the lower leagues of England and Scandinavia as well. So, yeah, I'm a, sort of a jack of all trades, maybe. Um, so happy to be on the show. Fantastic. It's great to have you on. Um, and then finally, John O'Sullivan, uh, how are you and where are you coming to us from? Very well, thanks. I'm from Galway in the west coast of Ireland. I'm a freelance sports journalist. Uh, in the football side of things, I mostly cover Liverpool FC for Anfield Index. Brilliant, 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 brilliant. To begin with, we'll start at Anfield, if that's okay. Um, Gerard Houllier passed away today at the age of 73. Um, for you, John, what's your thoughts on his legacy and his life as a man and a football coach? It's such a it's such a sad day for uh, a lot of Liverpool fans my age. I'm in my mid to late twenties. I'm actually getting to the age of my life now where I kind of don't say how old I am. Just generalize it. Uh, he was the first coach in our time as fans that brought us success. Uh, the treble of two thousand and one. But it's not only the silverware. It's the players he signed, the Sammy Hippias, the Diddy Hamans, even the Jersey Dudex, and the players he developed. He made uh, he made Jamie Carragher into a very consistent defender. He uh, appointed Steven Gerrard captain, so he oversaw a lot of young players cutting their teeth. Of course, Mike Lone won the Ballon d'Or under his management, so uh, his legacy is kind of far bigger than than the trophies he won. He also kind of dragged the club into the twenty first century, uh, so to speak. Uh, when he was appointed, there was a bit of a lad culture at Liverpool. You know, the infamous Spice Boys era. There was a lot of drinking. It wasn't majorly professional. There was a story of the players used to pass a one ca- a one pound coin around the game and whoever had it at the end of the, at the end of the game had to uh, had to buy the drink that night so it was a bit of a joke shop to be honest and he'd done a lot himself and Phil Thompson to modernize them to bring them kicking and screaming into uh, the 21st century but not only that he had a massive impact on French football he won uh, the European under 19 championship for France with players the ilk of Thierry Henry of David Trezeguet he'd done a lot of work in uh, Clairefontaine and that's been such an endless fountain of young talent in France over the years. And uh, even at Lyon, he won two league titles there and he gave the likes of Karim Benzema their debut. So he's had a massive, massive impact on football and to be really, really sadly missed 
uh, the Liverpool FC we know today, uh, it wouldn't be the same without him. If you look at the Champions League title they won in 2005, which was kind of their reawakening 15 odd years ago, uh, 13 of those players were either signed by him or came through the academy when he when he was at the club. So uh, his impact on Liverpool has been huge and he'll be very, very sadly missed. I think a lot of Liverpool fans can really, really relate to his love of the club because it was very genuine and very real. Maybe some people don't know that he was actually a teacher in Liverpool in 1969. He stood on the cop, he lived in the city, he drank with the fans. So uh, for, even for a Frenchman, he was a lifelong Liverpool fan and that's something that you know me as a fan, I can really relate to. So he'll be very sadly missed. Yeah, definitely. I think it's the kind of outpouring of like grief on social media today is very genuine. It seems, you know, like uh, he definitely seems to have kind of like touched a lot of people, and he was a very kind of well liked character, like genuinely well liked. I definitely agree that he kind of set the club up to uh, the kind of modern uh, era of success, and the kind of you could say that Rafa Benitez almost reaped the rewards of the kind of you know the groundwork that he laid down. Like I remember in the Jamie Carragher uh, Greatest Games podcast, he often speaks about how good that team was before Benitez came in, and like how kind of almost underappreciated he felt they were. Absolutely, look, they didn't play the prettiest of football at times, but they knew how to grind out wins, which is why they were so good in cups. I mean, the season that they won the treble, they played every uh, they played every fixture that they could have, and they still managed to finish fourth. Uh, they beat Charlton in the last game of the season to qualify for the Champions League, which you know, which was a major achievement. So. I think uh, I think he's somewhat underestimated in the pantheon of, of Liverpool legendary managers. You see those flags on the cops that has the faces of Shankly and Fagan and Dog Leash and Benitez and Klopp. Uh, I think he deserves to be there. Definitely. And Sam, what's your thoughts on this? Yeah, well, I'm kind of very similar to John, kind of similar. I actually kind of grew up with, with Gerard Hulli and I remember quite well his game. Just after he had the, the heart issue and he had to, was rushed to hospital and then came back and it was against Roma and I remember the kind of the atmosphere and I was only a kid at the time but watching on TV, seeing the atmosphere of everyone kind of so up for this game because it was the game when Julio was back, he was back in the dugout and it was such a big deal. And then today, so kind of seeing, even just going onto Twitter as a Liverpool fan and seeing like almost every ex-player that I follow all tweeting about it, even like Pepe Elena who never was playing for Liverpool under Julio but was kind of in that era just afterwards with Rafa Benitez and clearly people have spoken to him about Julia and kind of he's got to know the, his story. So I think, yeah, just kind of what John's already said that a great man kind of in his job, but also off the pitch as well, he's clearly made such a big impact on everybody around the club. Most definitely, most definitely. Um, and for you, Jonathan, um, kind of speaking of Gerard uh, Julia and Leon, uh, Leon played last night against Paris Saint-Germain in the league in and beat them 1-0. Uh, Neymar picked up a very kind of serious-looking uh, ankle injury that's actually been kind of relegated to a sprain. So it looks like he might be back for the uh, the last 16 of the Champions League withdrawal, which was made today. Uh, PSG were drawn against Barcelona. Um, München Gladbach got City. Lazio got Bayern. Atletico got Chelsea. Leipzig got Liverpool. Porto got Juve. Sevilla got Dortmund. Atlanta got Real Madrid. Uh, for you, Jonathan, which uh, kind of game of the round of 16 stands out for you in terms of uh, most interest? I think it's pretty. It's a pretty juicy draw, to be honest, isn't it? It's, there's quite a few sort of plum ties there. Um, quite attracted by Sevilla Dortmund, uh, just because they're two really entertaining teams to watch, always quite good in knockout phases, and um, a lot of good young talents there. Uh, of course, Barcelona v PSG is kind of a, a bit of a legacy game. 
um, seems to happen every every now and then. You know, you get that game was always on the cards. Um, Gladbach against Man City. I think even the Man- Gladbach account tweeted um, saying we always get Man City in in, the, in Europe. So they are even they are probably a bit fed up getting Man City, but um, be an entertaining tie. Of course, don't forget they qualified above Shakhtar Donetsk and Inter Milan. So you know they're, they're no mugs. Marcus Turam, Alisson, and Plea. They've got some really good good players. Um, I mean, if it was a tie of the round, then you may be looking at. Atletico, uh, sorry, um, Liverpool, Leipzig. Obviously, Leipzig knocking out Manchester United, and although Liverpool be really expected to win the game, um, I think Leipzig are one of the most tactically interesting teams in Europe at this moment in time. Julian Nagelsmann outwitted uh, Manchester United in in the final group game, and he will have probably a plan in place for Liverpool, and it will be a test of Liverpool, who have had a bit of a wobble this season, and still really clear favourites for the title probably, but. Just uh, not as maybe dominant and domineering as they were last year. So, yes, and everywhere you look, really, it's it's, uh, it's it's juicy ties. I think definitely it's full of good ties. Um, interestingly, that four Spanish teams and four German teams went through to the last sixteen. Um, Jasmine, for you, what's your thoughts on kind of the, the possible fortunes of the German teams coming into the last sixteen, and who do you think is the best chance of progressing? Maybe outside of uh, Bayern, I think. <laughs> You knew what I was going to lead with there. I was going to say Bayern, obviously. Um, you know what? It's quite... I wouldn't say it's difficult per se for both Gladbach and Leipzig. Gladbach have already been discounted by a couple of football journalists, which I think is completely the wrong idea. I think Gladbach, especially with some of their ties in the group stages, they've somehow gotten through while playing not at their best. And they've been a bit unfortunate with injuries and with um, COVID. Um, Ben Spiney, for instance, is one of their better players that has been missing throughout some of those games. Um, Dennis Okaria has been out for a very long time since March and he's only started to come back into it. And it was a bit unfair for him to come back in a more centre-back position. So, But they do have times where they look quite shaky and jaded. So it will be... But then Man City haven't looked that great either this season. So that one will definitely be more even than people are suggesting. Um as for Leipzig Liverpool, I cannot wait for that tie. I think that's my favourite tie of the uh, round of sixteen. I mean, it's German tacticians wherever you look with Nagelsmann, Klopp, and again, Nagelsmann's such a fantastic coach, and he doesn't have the same sort of quality Liverpool have. But again, there is so many things with injuries and COVID and just that has just been differing teams that what managers would like to put out. We've seen Klopp's kind of frustration in interviews that he can't choose his, the players that he wants to. And after Diogo Jota's been ruled out for God knows how long, we don't know what Liverpool show, what kind of Liverpool is going to show up. So I wouldn't discount those two teams. Again, it's going to be odd with Dortmund without a permanent manager. It, things could change. And with all the managers in the round of the 16 from German teams being touted for the Dortmund job, 
you don't know where their concentration is going to lie either. Yeah, it's interesting the comments from Spain today, from Seville especially, is uh, kind of, kind of, I would say, quiet confidence um, from the Sevilla camp because obviously they're aware that Dortmund has some very strong players in their team, uh, not least Erling Haaland, who uh, me and Jonathan spoke about quite a bit in the Norwegian football podcast we did three weeks ago. Um, but there's also kind of a, a realisation that, you know, a lot can happen in two months when the run of 16 is. Um, but it looks definitely like a kind of very, as Jonathan was alluding to, a very kind of lean and kind of balanced uh, round of 16. Um, but what do you think about um, the Dortmund coaching situation? Do you think it's deserved that Farva uh, got the sack? Or do you think that they should have had more patience? Or do you, uh, what, what do you think, Jasmine? I think it was coming. I think that some of those results were just a bit too striking to turn your head away from. Um I do kind of question the timing of it, and not that it was too early, but it it was. I think it was very evident earlier on that Favre had took them as far as he could take that team. Um, he is no way a bad coach. He is very talented, but for some reason, it just wasn't quite the right fit, and. You know, three consecutive home losses and in the manner of which that they lost to Stuttgart, um, Stuttgart could have had seven against Dortmund on Saturday. And I think it is just the time to bring someone else in. But then next, whoever they get in for their role, they need to clarify what they actually want in a manager, they, they obviously, their next step is for someone to take them to that next level, to compete with Bayern, to compete for the Bundesliga, to get them further in the Champions League. And I think crushing that to get another Barbara-like manager is not going to work. And they're just going to get into this roundabout of managers that you see in other clubs, which I think will put them at mediocre if they follow that route. Mm, yeah, definitely. One club that hasn't had a roundabout of managers is Atletico Madrid. Uh, Diego Simeone has been there for almost a decade at this point. Uh, Sam, you cover Madrid, Atletico Madrid quite closely. Uh, what are your thoughts about uh, their upcoming clash with Chelsea in the last 16 and also the Madrid derby that came last weekend where they lost to Real Madrid? Yeah, well, I think they're two polar opposites. The Chelsea tie is actually one that I myself, I'm an Atleti fan, I'm season to get older, I'm quite happy with that draw for Atleti. I think Chelsea are the, the perfect kind of team for a Diego Simeone side. We've seen some great battles up against them over the years. It's been a few years since we've faced them. I know that in the Champions League, they they were the only team to win in the first season at the Wanda Metropolitano. But then I think, yeah, I think it's kind of tie that suits Diego Simeone. They were quite happy and quite optimistic that they can kind of sit deep and play the defensive game and keep Chelsea out and then grab a goal on the counter very much like they did with Liverpool in the first leg last season. I think they'll look to use that same kind of approach to kind of invite Chelsea onto them and invite Chelsea to get more and more frustrated and then just sucker punch them. That's what Aleti do so well. And then at the other end of the scale was the, the derby, which was kind of all of the optimism, all of the excitement that Aleti had built up this season. 
the longest ever run of games without defeat that they've been on in the club's history, 26 games. And everything was so good. I mean, it was kind of people were billing it as as this was the game where Atleti could kind of get one hand on the title already, which is crazy to be talking about in mid-December. But that was how people were billing the tie. And it's quite clear that Simeone didn't feel entirely comfortable with that. All of the talk in the pre-match was, no, we're going to go game by game, partido a partido, which is kind of his catchphrase. And, and in the end, they just didn't show up. I think Simeone got it entirely wrong. I mean, Simeone's a great coach, a fantastic coach, but when he does experiment, there's a lot of times that it does go wrong. It does backfire. And I think up against Real Madrid, he just got everything wrong from the starting lineup, leaving Saul out and playing Hector Herrera. It just didn't make any sense. You'd kind of see he was hoping Herrera sit deeper, but it just didn't work because it gave Modric more space in the Real Madrid midfield. Then the substitutions, taking off Jao Felix, especially that was one that was just baffling looking for more of an attacking threat and he took off the two strikers that they had on the pitch. So plenty of questions for Diego Simeone, but to be fair to him, he has taken it on the chin. He said, yeah, it was me that got it wrong and I'll take the blame for this one and we'll move on. Yeah, it was an interesting game because uh, like the first half was very much kind of Real Madrid were in cruise control. Um, and then the second half, when he made three changes at halftime, there was an improvement initially. But then I felt like when he took off Joao Felix just after the, uh, the kind of... The, the game changed again, you know, and it kind of didn't have the same grasp upon things that they did maybe in the beginning of the second half. And he was also quite angry when he came off. Uh, what do you think about the kind of anger he showed Joao Felix when he came off, especially when it comes during a week where Luis Suarez and Saul Niguez did kind of the same thing? Do you think it's a good sign or do you think it's a bad sign or what do you think about it? I think it's great. I mean, it's it's Cholo Simeone. I mean, it's that whole kind of attitude of, of the rage of football and that's all that Diego Simeone is about. And he's the kind of coach that will love that and he'll embrace that. I think something that over the last few years Atleti haven't had enough of. I mean, we've had kind of the the Griezmanns who would go and sulk on the bench and then the Diego Costas who would have that kind of rage but over the last few years not expressed it in the right way. I think now it's kind of very indicative of the character of the squad that, that Atleti have at the moment. I mean, they've got players like Marco Chirente, Joao Felix, kind of these young players who are just desperate to win and I think it shows their, their competitive nature. It's not so much kind of a rage on a selfish level of Jao Felix wanted to be the one player to, to score the winning goal, but kind of that competitive nature that they're frustrated that the team are going behind and that they can't help the team out anymore. I think that's something that is very evident in the squad this year and it's reflected in that because it's happened a couple of times this season where there's been substitutes come off and, and throwing and kicking water bottles and all sorts, but I think Diego Simeone won't admit it, but secretly he quite likes it. Yeah, definitely. And and just kind of for a word on um on Real Madrid then as well, it was the first time where they made uh well basically the first time that the trio played the second time the trio played together in central midfield of uh Luka Modric, Tony Kroos and Casemiro. Um and it was also Real Madrid have averaged three point five changes per lineup per game this season until uh, Saturday's game, last Saturday's game against Sevilla. Uh, and since then, nine of the 11 who started that game started the game against Atletico and the game against Borussia Mönchengladbach midweek. And one of those was, was uh, Sergio Ramos who came in after the Sevilla game, which he missed through injury. Like, and, and I thought that the three of them were superb against Atletico on, uh, on Saturday especially, but also in the other two games. Like, How important do you think it is for Madrid to have their main, kind of the three wise men of, say, you know, Casemiro, Modric and Cruz in midfield, but also Sergio Ramos, the centre-back, 
like how pivotal are they to Madrid functioning as a unit? But, yeah, I think they're crucial. I mean, we always talk about how Real Madrid have to kind of move on and forget about Modric and, and Cruz and look to the future, look to Felipe Valverde and, and the other players they've got in the squad. But every time you put those three together, they just produce the goods. And you're thinking, Modric has 30, is 35 years old, but when is he going to age? I mean, you watch him on Saturday night and he played three, four days earlier, but he's there in the final minutes of the game, pressing and, and all sorts. And you're just thinking, when are these guys finally going to show some sign of aging? But I think it is crucial on Zinedine Zidane, whenever he kind of comes into a bad run, a bit of a rut, then he always reserts, resorts to this and picks out his his reliable players, the players that he's kind of relied on all the way through their successful years. So the Marcelo, the Sergio Ramos, Rafael Varane, and he always kind of just goes back to basics. So I think having those three available over the last week has been really, really important for Real Madrid to kind of gain their confidence back and kind of re-establish themselves almost and start the season from scratch because they have had some real downs in the past few weeks. But having those three back in midfield has kind of brought a lot more composure to their team. Definitely, yeah. Um, and the other side of that Atletico draw, uh, they've Chelsea, of course. Um, they lost their second game of the season at the weekend against Everton at Goodison Park. Um, and kind of maybe put a bit of a breakers on while it'd been a kind of very good run for them. Uh, for you, Jonathan, what do you think about the English side's chances this season in the Champions League? And uh, who is standing out for you in terms of being a potential contender for the title? I don't think you can look past Liverpool. I think they, of, of all the English teams, they would be my, my favourite probably. And I'm sure many other people's favourites as well. It was a bit of a strange game, the Atletico game, because, you know, in, in last season's Champions League, the way they were knocked out, if everyone you know might remember, um, it was kind of on the brink of the, the pandemic. And, you know, there was a lot of conjecture about whether the game should have taken place at Anfield and, and the repercussions of that with fans. And, you know, shortly after that, basically, football shut down, didn't it? So it was a bit of a strange tie, really. Atletico did a number on them, but I, I would still think that Liverpool will have a lot to say. I think this year they're, they're modelling slightly um, worse in terms of conceding chances. Uh, obviously, Aston Villa tore them to pieces and um, generally defensively without Van Dijk, they're slightly slightly more defensively creaky. But you can't overlook the, the way they can control games, um, the way they dominate games. A good example is the Atalanta game uh, away where they just took them apart. It was, I was really, really impressed with them in, in that game. Um, it was a real demonstration of what Liverpool can can still do. If they can get over their injury problems, I would probably have them as, as the English English favourite. I think Bayern and Liverpool would probably be my two favourites going into it. I do think that looking at the draw, although there's some really nice ties, as I've said, and, and I think it's going to be a fascinating round of 16, I do think the level, there's an argument that the level has dropped maybe in, in Europe at this moment in time, whether that's just due to the huge amount of games, whether that's just due to, you know, teams being slightly slightly worse than they were maybe a few years back. I think with the pandemic as well, there hasn't been maybe the squad regeneration that, that may be needed. Uh, I'll give you an example, Real Madrid obviously signing, I think nobody last in, in the summer, which was one of the first times in recent history that that's happened. And you can see their team is kind of creaking a little bit in, in, in certain respects, just narrowly made it through that group. And I think you can apply that to quite a few teams. Barcelona are nowhere near the level that you would expect from them. Um, you know, their, their, their system and their shape kind of with Koeman is, has been questioned many times by many people and, and really it's still kind of, to a certain extent, relying on Messi. I'd have PSG probably favourites for that game. Uh, and, and just in general, by an aside, I, I think you can say that most of the teams have been better at other, you know, most of the favourites you would say have been better at, in previous seasons. So I think it's a real opportunity for teams like Atalanta, 
Um, although they have their issues at the moment with with Papu Gomez and Ilicic and, and you know the rumours there with Gasparini, um, but I think there's a real opportunity for those kind of teams uh, to to have an impact this season in the league. And just to kind of back up my point on on, on the level maybe dropping, if you look at the teams who are at the top of the league and in, in Europe's top five leagues at the moment are you know most of them in the Europa League. You've got Real Sociedad, AC Milan, Tottenham, Lille, and Bayer Leverkusen. So um, that just speaks maybe to the fact that the, t- the, the the so-called bigger teams, you know, the bigger names aren't, aren't maybe having the same impact in, in, as they might expect. So um, that, of course, could change. And, you know, uh, maybe there'll be some January signings and maybe with the schedule easing now, teams could reassert their dominance, which I probably expect would happen in, in Germany, for example, with Bayern. Um, Liverpool may now go on a run, for example, as well. But it's just a little pointer there to keep an eye on. I think this is a real opportunity for maybe some of the smaller teams to have, have a year to remember. Definitely. John, for you, who stands out for you as one of the favourites of the third league season, Champions League third brothers. Do you think Liverpool are in a good place? They drew one all weekend in Fulham. Uh, what are your thoughts on their situation at the moment? I think Liverpool are potentially in a good place. Uh, I think they're probably fortunate that there's such a big gap between match uh, the first match day and the second match day. It's, it's over three weeks, I think, so... Uh, that could give them uh, ample time to get a lot of players back from injury. Um, <laughs> with the case of Thiago, it's like who knows when he's going to be back, but hopefully he's back by then because I think he'll add much needed control to the midfield. But not only that, he'll he'll just come in and give someone else the opportunity to drop out. The likes of Jorginho Wijnaldum have played an obscene amount of football this season, and you know logically there's going to be there's going to be like a residual impact to that. He's surely going to, his form is surely going to start to regress and he might even pick up injuries. So I think the fact that uh, it's a few weeks away, yeah, it will probably benefit Liverpool. But outside of them, um, John's mentioned Bayern. I think they're probably still the best team in the competition. And uh, I think Atletico Madrid are, are a club that, uh, that a lot of teams would want to avoid just because they're so organised, they're so efficient on the counter-attack. And I think now, after last season being maybe a lot of a uh, a lot of transition there, they spent a lot of money and they made a lot of signings and maybe they didn't play as well as I thought they might have in La Liga, but they've uh, they've really consolidated this season and improved. And I think the signing of Luis Suarez, even if he's not even if he's not the player of old, really gives them an element that they were missing last season. I remember, uh, for example, they played Diego Costa at Anfield and he was he was very poor. Uh, I think he has an issue with his back that a lot of people were saying that he's not able to physically impose himself on defenders like he used to have. So just having Suarez instead of him in the lineup gives him a really potent attacking weapon. So outside of uh, Bayern and Liverpool, I definitely have Atletico probably as a third favourite, a real, real dark horse. Yeah, I really like Atletico as well. Uh, I think they've changed their style so much. Um, Sam, what do you think about the new kind of, the new way of playing, the new kind of Cholismo? Because it's not the way that we've seen him play uh, for most of his kind of reign. Um, like they've, experiment with three at the back and five midfield it's not just a flat back four anymore and like, I remember you wrote a piece recently for Squawka detailing the relationship between Luis Suarez and Joao Felix so I just wanted to ask you what you think about Atletico's kind of new version of Cholismo their chances for the Champions League title this season and also the importance of their relationship between Luis Suarez and uh, Joao Felix yeah I think it links back a lot to what John was just discussing and how Atleti kind of invested last summer so the one before this one just gone and kind of last year Charles Simeone said it a lot there was a transition year that it was all about the kind of adapting and last season was a weird one because there were games where Atleti were outstanding like at Anfield 
And then there were others where they just couldn't get out of first gear and there were a lot of nil-nil, one-all draws. I think it was kind of that kind of debate for Simeone almost of what did he want to make this team of? Did he want to build it into his kind of traditional 4-4-2, sit back deep and, and counter-attack? Or did he want to build a neutralismo, as you put it? I think that's what he's done this season. He's got a lot of wide runners. I think Llorente and Carrasco and also Angel Correa off the bench. They're kind of players who have become really pivotal to the system. And then Luis Suarez coming in has allowed Simeone to get the best out of Jao Felix. I think what he was doing before was kind of that he was trying to squeeze Jao Felix into the traditional Simeone system and it didn't quite work because he kind of plays best when he's just off another striker. Simeone was putting him out wide, he was putting him kind of as the number nine and none of those really worked for Jao. And then I think this season, Luis Suarez being the man who can kind of wait on the last shoulder, do all the physical battling and then have Jao Felix in behind in that little pocket. I think that's kind of playing to his strengths. And in Suarez, you've got another guy who's playing to his strengths in doing that role. So I think it's finally kind of the combination of bringing the right profiles of players together and Simeone just saying, right, let's go for it and let's be a bit more offensive and let's go with that kind of approach. It's remarkable, yeah, because very few managers can build a very good team, but even fewer can build two very good teams. And I feel like Simeone really has degenerated his Atletico team. And he had the period of last season, which you could say was maybe a, a fallow period, but I think uh, he's definitely come through it. And it was very, very good and very, very fresh, as you mentioned. Uh, Jasmine, what do you think about it? What do you think about your Champions League title contenders this season? It, it's more about Atletico's um, upcoming round of 16 match with Chelsea and more on the Chelsea side. I mean, when I saw that, I was thinking, and especially what we've said about Atletico so far this evening, um, just this really should be a prime fixture for Simeone to really stamp his ground because I don't know what everyone else's thoughts are on Chelsea and I would love to hear them without me being so biased and me taking a neutral look. But Chelsea have spent so much money and I'm so still underwhelmed by their team. And I'm just thinking if Simeone doesn't teach them a lesson, I, I just don't know who else would be in a like prone position to until they get to maybe a, a buy-in. Um, so I just wondered what other people's thoughts are on Chelsea taking up in just that picture in general, really. John, do you want to say something? Well, doesn't Jasmine know that Frank Lampard has worked very, very hard and that makes him very special and very qualified? <laughs> in true Frank Lampard style. I mean, I watched I watched his pretty much every derby game he was manager and I still don't know what to make of that season. Um I was at a film game where they lost 3-0 without a shot on target and it was just one of the worst matches I've ever been to. Um, and some of the Chelsea matches that I've seen this season under him, it's off the same calibre. I'm, I'm still, as someone who's watched a lot of German football, I am still struggling on why they bought Timo Werner. I think Timo Werner's great. Don't get me wrong, but they, it doesn't it doesn't upgrade anything that they had, and I, I think I'm hoping 
Atletico really do show them up um, if Frank Lampard's not already gone and whoever replaces Favre sets off a whole European managerial circus merry-go-round. Yeah, I think it's interesting because, like, obviously when Lampard came into the club, his job was kind of unified the support and kind of, you know, get a bit of positivity into a campaign that otherwise would have been quite grim given the uh, the transfer ban. And, and he did that, to be fair, and they got top four. Uh, but now, given the investment this past summer, I'd be very interested to see how his reign goes in the next couple of years. Um, I think it'd be a very interesting test. Um, but he's not the only player, of course, who's kind of into his first major managerial job in London, as you know, Jasmine. Uh, Mikel Arteta is also in a similar boat, took over last December. Um, coming into a year into the job, uh, what are your thoughts on uh, his reign so far? Obviously, they lost to Burnley at the weekend. They've drawn um, Benfica in the Europa League uh, last 32. Uh, what's your thoughts on all things Arsenal at the moment? Um, not a lot. <laughs> um, I tried to damp down the thoughts to to stop my brain from hurting so much um it's obviously a hard job a hard task to be arsenal an arsenal manager and i think whoever was gonna take the reign from arsene wenger had a lot to do and 18 months of unai emery did not help that there are problems at board level that needs to be ironed out. It's a fairly young board and a fairly inexperienced board that are currently running things. And it's not going as well as I had hoped. Um, I'm not one of those who can put blame on Mikel Arteta at the moment. However, key decisions of his, I cannot reason for or explain. There are major flaws in some tactical decisions and personnel decisions that I, quite frankly, cannot get my head around. Um, the fact that he's still sticking with this back four formations, either the 4-2-3-1 that he's shown for the last couple of weeks with Lacazette as a 10. I, I just can't get behind that. People were complaining that we were boring in the 3-4-3 three, three that we were playing, the back three, back five. Um, but, you know, we still have a more solid structure. I'm wondering if there are some players that are now thinking not getting behind him and um we had Bellerin come out a few weeks ago saying everyone's behind the manager but especially with the disciplinary issues that are keep on coming ahead i'm not sure if that tells the whole story um there's obviously been recruitment issues for years um and it's not getting any better with william being uh, william or god knows how much it a week for three years and yeah it doesn't seem to be getting any better in Arsenal fan I think Arteta needs to go back to basics like he did when he first came came in and just work on hospital pressure going back to that three and going in offense to a two three five which wasn't great 
but it worked somewhat because right now it's changed too much in too quick of a time and it's just not working. Yeah, I think that Bellerine will always speak well of Arteta because I think when Bellerine arrived at Arsenal, Arteta and his wife kind of really took him under his wing, you know, his fellow. But he, Mikel is obviously Spanish and his wife is Argentinian and they kind of, you know, looked after him really and his girlfriend. So I think he kind of looks up to him almost like a big brother, almost like a fatherly figure. Um, but I agree, I think that Arteta is such a kind of, you know, precise and kind of disciplinarian character that that works if there's progress being made, but the moment things start to go wrong and there is disciplinary issues, like the Guinduzi situation early on in his reign or the various things that have been happening recently, like Granite Jacket getting sent off the weekend. I think things do go pear-shaped almost quite quickly. Um, Jonathan, we had a conversation at the weekend um, after uh, the Arsenal game, and uh, we were kind of commenting on how uh, Mourinho's comments about uh, Arteta was almost Ferguson-like in that he kind of only ever comments pe- uh, comments well of people uh, who he doesn't see as a kind of specific threat. He was saying that Arsenal are doing a great job with Arteta and that he's the man for them. I just wanted to ask what your thoughts on Arteta was and do you think he's the right man for Arsenal and what do you think um, he's done uh, bit to benefit them since they took over? Yeah, I think it was extremely Machiavellian from Mourinho and... As someone who's followed follow Ferguson, you know, for many years, definitely that was straight out of the Ferguson playbook, kind of patronising semi-pat on the head for your for your neighbour that you've just beaten fairly comfortably. Um, I didn't understand the criticism of Mourinho after that game. Sky TV made out as if um, Arsenal had won the match. I think Jamie Redknapp said something like Arsenal have been excellent, which I just found baffling. Um, Arsenal were dominated. Spurs completely controlled the game. Um, they knew what they were doing. It, it was basically, I think I saw a tweet saying it was like having a mouse running into a mouse trap and then sort of praising praising the mouse for the way it eats the cheese. Um, and I kind of agreed with that. So, yeah, I think, um, yeah, it's, yeah whether, whether Mourinho meant it or not, and, you know, he's, he, he's certainly a master of press conferences and knows, knows what to say. But uh, I, I do think to be, you know, to look at the positives for Arteta, I, I do think he, he speaks really clearly. He has a clear idea of how he wants to do things. Um, I don't think it's all doom and doom and gloom for Arsenal. I mean, fifteenth is is pretty pretty poor, um, but uh, and and to be honest, the metrics and the underlying numbers suggest that it's kind of where they should be. This is this isn't a fluke. This isn't kind of like a, an unexpected thing. To be honest, you know, I, I was mentioning about Sean Dyche and kind of the comparisons between him and Arteta, and they're very similar in style in terms of the <clears throat> the underlying numbers this season and the style of play. So, you know, that's not going to please any Arsenal fan to hear that, but it's kind of the reality. But but I think. You know, Arteta's won an FA Cup already. He, he's won a Community Shield, so you have to already give him some some kudos. Like that, many managers go through their entire career and don't win anything. So he's already got that in the bank. Um, I think Arsenal is like kind of similar to Manchester United. It's a ship that's going to take a, quite a while to turn turn really. And for your very first job in the Premier League, I think it's an enormous task. I, I, I'm not sure really. Uh, one of my <clears throat> one of my issues or kind of critiques really is like. I feel that sometimes in in the media as well, like we build up characters too quickly, and I think there was way too many kind of puff pieces making Arteta out to be the next messiah of world football and that kind of thing. There was too many articles about the lovely post-it notes he has on his kitchen fridge with tactical notes and things like that, or the the the, the beautiful way he talks to players, or the Wheel of Fortune. I don't know if you guys heard of that, but the games he plays at the training ground and that kind of thing. I just felt like it was a little bit too like building this character up 
um, not really based on a huge amount of substance. And that's kind of come back to haunt him, to be honest, because every, everybody built him up into this managerial great before he's really been in the job for, for more than a year. So that's not his fault. And it's kind of, um, there's nothing he can do about that. He can't control that narrative, but, but that narrative is kind of coming back to bite him. Because now when the dip happens, it's kind of looked at like, wait a minute, I thought this guy was a messiah. So my position on it is that, yeah, I think I would never advocate for manager to be, to be sacked. I think it's premature, just as it was premature to build him up into this great. But it's going to take a long time, I think, to, to turn Arsenal around. There's, there's just too much dead wood at the club. Um, I, I question the decision to give Aubameyang a, a £55 million contract at 31 years old. That's the biggest ever contract given to a 31-year-old in Premier League history. Um, for for three years, you could say the same about Willian. There's obviously been conversations between Kia Jurabchin and, and Jamie Carragher uh, quite publicly, and and the whole thing there. Um, who who's controlling the transfers at the club? Who's in charge of that? I really didn't quite. I mean, obviously, Aubameyang is a is a really great uh, player, and you know, I've followed him for many years since Saint Etienne when I was a football analyst working on the French league. So I followed his career really closely, and he, you know, I really like him. But I think Arsenal kind of make those decisions that I, I think other clubs maybe don't make. You don't see that happening at, at Liverpool, a 31-year-old getting such a huge contract. I, I just don't think that happens at smart clubs. And um, so, you know, especially when you have the likes of Balogun and Nketiah and other good forwards coming through, I just just wondered about that. Um, Willian again as well, I wondered about that. And, and I just think that there's so much money draining out of Arsenal per week. You look at the Mesut Ozil situation, that's about 300 grand a week just draining out of the club for a player who isn't even registered. So there's just so many issues asked in the William Saliba situation. What's happening there, really? Um, it's left out of the squad. Apparently, that's kind of damaged morale among certain players. Um, Socrates is not in the squad, and that's damaged morale. Ozil, that's damaged morale. So for, for any manager trying to navigate that, it's a really, really tough situation, let alone someone in, in his first job. So while I think Ateta's been the victim of, of too much praise too early, um, I do think there's positives and that he can turn it around eventually, but I think it's going to be... A, they're going to, it's going to be a long, long haul. And it's kind of alarming, I think, probably the way this season has gone in just terms of the way that they seem to have just kind of fallen off a cliff in, in, in their playing style and, and, and how they approach games. Yeah, I remember when Arsenal missed only Champions League the first time, uh, they, the squad agreed that they wouldn't take a... They wanted to readjust the structure of their bonuses uh, to be in line with the Europa League player because they'd basically take more money from the Premier League as opposed to the Champions League because the percentage was more weighted towards the Champions League. And it's kind of hard to explain, but I think they're basically, they were basically, they, they started to lose money by not altering their um, bonus scheme. And they did so because they wanted to consider themselves a Champions League club. They didn't want to accept that they were a European League club. But I think sometimes you actually have to accept where you are and work from there as opposed to trying to kind of almost recapture something that's not there anymore. But like for you, John, now, for instance, like how would you compare the Arsenal situation to maybe Liverpool on the clock in the beginning? Do you think that there's any kind of green shoots of progress there? Or, or do you think that it's going to be a different situation altogether? Or what are your, what's your thoughts on it? It's a little bit different. I think when Klopp came in, he really unified disparate parts of the club. Whereas you have Brendan Rodgers versus the transfer committee where Rodgers would malign the people who run Liverpool's recruitment team publicly or, you know, through briefing the media and at times then he wouldn't give players a sign such as Iago Aspas or Luis Alberto a fair crack, crack of their whip relative to the players that he picked. So it was a bit of a mess. So, I mean, Klopp kind of unified the club in that regard. 
But I think uh, Arteta has walked into such a difficult job. I mean, he's financially hamstrung by like these big contracts that are paid out to players that he either can't use or that he can't really fit into the structure he's trying to employ. But I think the fact that he even has a structure is a positive. I think the narrative around Unai Emery when he was at Arsenal was, what's his style of football? It's just like 11 players in a team with no real set idea of how to go about winning a game. Whereas Arteta does have an idea and a structure and it's solid and it's consistent. It might not always work, but that could be down to the players he has at his disposal. And I suppose if he's under pressure, then like a lot of that's on the club. You don't hire a rookie manager and then not envision him having some teething problems and miss a kind of a a wreck of a club at the minute. So I think he definitely needs to be given time. And uh, I think he's the least of the problems at the club. The fact that they've kind of delegated their recruitment and scouting to agents, I think, is a is a really poor move. It would work for the likes of Wolves because they're on a smaller scale with uh, George Mendes. But I think at a club like Arsenal, it's kind of a disastrous move. And uh, I think we're only starting to see kind of uh, the negative impact of it now. I think all of these points are just completely spot on. Arsenal, as a football club, haven't been smart for a very long time. Some may even argue since David Dean left. Um, what that put, what kind of transpired afterwards was Arsene Wenger was basically control of everything and didn't really get any backing from the board. And when Stan Kroenke came in, his absolutely dire reputation among his um, American teams kind of put me at uneasiness and that kind of uneasiness has only been proven right. Um, what happened with Arsene Wenger is he left too late but also too early. If he left straight after the FA Cup win in like 2014, there were still good managers to be brought in like Jurgen Klopp, like Pep Guardiola around those times. But he kind of left at a void where no real good managers that fit the Arsenal philosophy that Arsenal Wenger kind of built, um, that it just kind of went down the drain. Unai Emery wasn't really a manager to take that forward. He was a good Europa League manager when Arsenal were trying to be a Champions League club again. Um, so if Arsene Wenger would have stayed and kept the glue together, it probably would have worked out better until Arteta was in a stronger place to take over. Things would have been run a little bit more right. They weren't the smartest in Arsene Wenger's final years, but it was definitely not the mess now. And he would definitely not have the agents that you've got running about trying to, you know, give... Woody Ant is the third highest paid player in the club. It's just a bit of a mess at the moment, and it does need quite a bit of sorting out. I think this Sinead going, I think that was one of the turning points, but there's still a lot of damage to rectify. Yeah, I think knowing when to leave is definitely integral, and obviously we've seen that with Manchester United as well, who we'll touch on in a second. But first, I want to just talk about uh, their opponents in the Europa League, Real Sociedad. Um, they're currently top of La Liga. Uh, they're level on points and goal difference with Atletico, but they've scored more goals, so they're just taking top spot at the moment. But uh, they really want plaudits across Europe with their kind of very 
positive, attacking, you know, kind of almost youthful football. And while they earn plaudits for signing David Silva in the offseason, they're far from just David Silva plus 10. Their two main players, Mikel Marino and uh, Mikel Oyarzabal, are uh, both uh, kind of quite local players and they're both below 25 and they're both playing really, really well. So Sam, I just wanted to ask you what you think about Real Sociedad and uh, what you think about the other uh, European Spanish teams in Europa League, uh, Granada and um, Granada and Villarreal. And, uh, and yeah. What do you think about um, Spain's chances in Europa League this season? What do you think about Real Sociedad's chances specifically against Manchester United? I think Real Sociedad could spring a bit of an upset. I mean, they're a typical kind of team that are very much a, a team. I mean, they're a unit. They're maybe not necessarily the most talented players, but they've got a real belief and a real team mentality, a good work rate, and they're all local. There's young teams. So they're all going out there with a point to prove. I mean, kind of the, the polar opposite to Manchester United, I guess, in many ways. And I'm quietly optimistic about their chances. I think that they could spring an upset on Man United, especially if Man United go into the tie with any any kind of arrogance at all. I think Laudel could really really surprise them. Elsewhere, I think Granada are a great team. I mean, again, another side who, on paper, you'd expect them to be out of the Europa League by now, but they're just a team that works very well. Diego Martinez, the coach, got them set up very well. They're very disciplined defensively, and then they're quite potent in attack as well. But I think they're going to have their work out against Napoli. I think that might be the kind of team that's just one step too far in terms of the, the difference in quality. And then with Villarreal, I mean, I think they should overcome Salzburg. But I think with Unai Emery, you can never quite tell how things are going to go. Sometimes he gets it ta- tactically very wrong, as we've already heard from Jasmine this time at Arsenal. But I think with him, it's always a little bit unpredictable. I think Villarreal this season are very much that in the big games up against the the Barcelonas, the Real Madrids, they've not got it right. And they've ended up on the, the wrong end of a thrashing. So I think if they can can turn up for the occasion, then they should be okay. But I wouldn't put any money on Villarreal. I think Vicente Ebora was ruled out for the rest of the season today as well, which is a blow because you know you can be kind of the only real, kind of really holding kind of defensive midfielder they have. You know, and it's kind of, I think it's disappointing for him to be ruled out. Uh, but from the United side of things, uh, Jonathan, what do you think about United at the moment? Do you think that? The Paul Pogba situation is weighing heavily on the club. Um, what are your thoughts on the Manchester City uh, Man United game at the weekend? Well, I think if anyone has had trouble sleeping uh, in this, you know, troublesome 2020, then uh, that was a very, very good uh, cure to get you to sleep. Um, probably one of the most dull derbies in in history. I think I saw someone. I think Mika Richards said it's the worst ever derby he's seen since he's been associated with the club when he joined it. 14 or whatever it was so I think that was that kind of aptly summed it up um predominantly because of the lack of fans maybe you could argue just maybe the 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 accumulation of games the the fatigue um you know there's been so many games and and you have to sort of have empathy with the players at a certain point because they're having to do this every two three days and then the intensity you need to compete at Champions League you know Premier League level is sometimes I think underappreciated and so maybe that was a natural element of it and and also, maybe a game where both sides kind of in the back of their mind just felt a point would be would be fine. You know, Guardiola mentioned after the game that uh, he'd lost against United twice the season before. So I think he had a kind of he was I think he was pretty comfortable taking a point um, in the back of his mind. And Solskjaer, I think, would be very happy taking that point because of all the pressure um, that would have come if they had lost the game. So 
although team both sides tried to try to try to win, you know, really I think they were happy with with a, a drab nil nil. Um, in terms of what I think of Manchester United, of course, uh, where do I begin? I suppose um, the Paul Pogba situation. I don't I don't think it's really affecting the club as much as as is dubbed. Uh, I do actually think that Pogba's quite a focused player, and I think he gets way too much um, focus on him. But that's just part of the fact that he is kind of like the alpha at the club. He's the he's the he's the leader of the club, really, isn't he? He's the, he's like the peacock figure of Manchester United, the the um, the main attraction in terms of in terms of what you know when people think about the club at this moment in time. So he's always naturally going to draw that attention to him, and it doesn't help that he has a, a pretty vocal. Uh, representative who is happy to talk about um, his situation hours before uh, season-defining matches. I think, you know, on the pitch, I think, for example, the Manchester City game at the weekend, I thought Pogba played quite well. Um, the West Ham game, I thought he played well. He came on against Leipzig and played well. So I think that speaks to Pogba's level and his ability, if you, if you can get the, the best out of him. Um, but at the same time, you know, it seems clear for, for quite a while he, he doesn't really want to be at Manchester United and... Um, I side with Gary Neville on that in the sense that if you have a player that doesn't want to be there, you, you can't pin your, you know, to, to coin an American sort of phrase, you can't you can't pin your franchise on a player who doesn't want to be there, basically. So it's, a, it's an issue that will have to be resolved at some point. I can see a transfer probably in the summer, maybe even January. Bear in mind that now Manchester United in the Europa League, I think I'm right in saying he's still eligible for Champions League due to the new rule change. Um, same rule change that saw Erling Braut Haaland play for Dortmund last season after He'd been uh, transferred from Salzburg. So you never know. Someone could pick him up in January and still have him in the the Champions League. But um, yeah, United are a a strange team. I think it's similar in some ways, parallels with Arsenal. A big ship that's going to take quite a while to turn around. I think there's been, I think at boardroom level, probably maybe the two most dysfunctional clubs in the the land um, at the highest level. I think they're both, you know, huge you know, United and Arsenal are two of the biggest clubs in English football. Let's let's no, let's make no bones about it. But I think they're both there's huge question marks about how both are run. If I'm honest, um, the Glazer family almost seems to use Manchester United as a bank account, cash out their 11 million pound in dividends, and and just see what happens. Really, as long as it's Champions League football's there, they're they're pretty satisfied. I think the summer was the chance to really stamp their mark on it. Um, I saw a tweet from Jan Fjortoft and he was saying, well, you know. Um, Manchester United, if they win their game in hand, there's sort of a few points off the top. How's that for the Ole Out Brigade? Um, and I just thought that's kind of a real fixed mindset mentality. Like, let's be clear about it. Manchester United are the, the biggest club in England in terms of, well, you know, along with Liverpool, you could argue, but, you know, um, I'm slightly biased, so I'll say Manchester United are the biggest club in the land. And the expectation to sort of be below Southampton is just not really the level that United should be aiming for. I really think there's an opportunity for any club this season to win the title. And I'd even include like the likes of Southampton in that. I know it sounds ridiculous, but there's a there's a clear run for a, a team to, to 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 win the league this season. It's a COVID season. Um, there's injuries all over the place. A team with a real focus and 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 smart thinking, like a Spurs at this moment in time, could could win the league. So I don't get this argument that Manchester United should kind of just be sitting around happy to be be you know kind of sixth or fifth. I, I don't buy that whatsoever. I think the club has the the quality in that squad to, to challenge for the title in this in this crazy season. They're still above Manchester City, even with only scoring one goal from open play in the league this year. That tells you a lot, a lot about it. You know, they're only a few points behind Liverpool, despite really, I can't think of a game where I came out of it thinking Manchester United had really actually played very, very well. Like, you know, they're kind of 
rolling along but still in in the hunt so I, I think there needs to be a kind of a broader horizon when looking at United and what they should be achieving um so I don't really buy this argument that um you know we should be United you know, should be happy to be where they are at this moment in time I think there's an opportunity and and just to kind of finalize um and, and kind of back that up you know United at this moment in time are 14th in the league for like expected goals um, way, way below any kind of expectation, below Fulham even in the table in terms of goals expected. The style of play is vibes FC, I've said. It's individual moments, um, you know, athletic. <laughs> Every It's just kind of Bruno Fernandes, Pogba or, you know, a penalty maybe or whatever. And, uh, you know, and the team is also ninth in expected goals against. So so really, although the, met- the metrics aren't supporting that this is a team heading in the right direction, to be honest, it's just kind of, they seem to get through games a- as they can. So, yeah, I, you know, I could talk about United for quite a while. I hope I've, I've kind of summed it up in a, in a concise way. But um, my overriding feeling is that, you know, the way they threw away the Champions League group just speaks to the problems of the club. I think I think if you look at the Istanbul-Basaksehir uh, game, if you look at the PSG game, the 3-1 defeat at home, and then you look at the Leipzig game, to me, that's Manchester United in a nutshell at this moment in time. S- some nice moments, but then throw it away when it really counts. Yeah, definitely. I think it's interesting because Roy Keane is much blind, obviously. Kind of a polarizing figure, and he does speak in broad strokes quite often. But I think sometimes you need to speak in broad strokes. I think he often makes that point you just made there that United should never actually be going for fourth place as an achievement, it should always be the title. And I think in this season, there's definitely an opportunity for it to happen. And as Jasmine uh, said earlier, like who knows what can of worm the Dortmund thing is going to open up because theoretically, say if Dortmund go for Pochettino could put pressure on United to go for Pochettino and it could open up a whole can of worms. You know? So I don't know. I think it's an interesting few weeks ahead and months ahead. It's almost academics actually make a point about uh, who's going to do well in the last 16 when so much can change in the two months between now and then. So anyway, I think it's interesting. As always, there's lots to talk about. But, uh, but guys, thanks very much for joining me. Um, I really, really appreciate it. We're out of time now. Um, but uh it was a very interesting conversation. Well, we're on the chat, so I really appreciate it. The listeners, thanks for joining me as well. I'll see you next week. Thanks, guys. Bye.